Part four of Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore, from the Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines, by Mary Cowden Clarke. Part four. The altered manner of the young girl escaped the notice of the cottage inmates, but the child observed the change in her friend and sorrowed wonderingly. Once, returning to the bank where she had left Jutha seated in one of her saddest moods, Ophelia found her restored to sudden gaiety. Lord Eric had arrived while the child was away, and was talking cheeringly and encouragingly to his companion, while one of his arms was thrown about her, holding her close to him. Jutha withdrew from the clasping arm as the child approached, looking bashful and embarrassed, but at the same time so happy, and so much her bright former self, that Ophelia in her innocent affection for her friend could not help hoping that their forest acquaintance might always come and console Jutha, with his kindness of word and manner, when she should be out of spirits. But time goes on, and the young girl's dejection increases. Ophelia finds her one evening, sitting by the rivulet, wringing her hands and sobbing. The child soothes her fondly asking what grieves her. Jutha attempts to deny that she had been weeping, but Ophelia replies, "'You bathe your eyes in the water of the stream, that I may not see the tears, but I know that you have been crying. Tell me what makes you cry, Jutha?' Jutha only shook her head, trying to stifle a sob that would be heard. "'If you care not to tell your grief to such a little thing as I am, who can comfort you with no help or counsel? Why not tell your mother what grieves you?' I often wish I could tell my own mamma what I think and feel. Tell our good mother if anything grieves you, Jutha." "'But nothing grieves me. I can't tell her,' faltered the young girl. "'Then tell our friend of the wood, your friend, Lord Eric. He seems kind and fond of you, Jutha." "'So long as he is fond of me, so long as he is my friend, nothing can grieve me,' said Jutha. "'But nothing does grieve me. Come, what are we talking of grief? Let us return home, and I'll tell you a story by the way." "'I shall like that. It is long since I heard one of your stories, Jutha. I shall love to hear one again.' Jutha rejoiced to find that she had succeeded, as she had hoped to do, in turning the child's attention from herself to the promised tale. But though Ophelia looked up in her friend's face with the eagerness of expectation, it did not prevent her from noting, with the sorrowing acuteness of loving perception, the many tokens of altered mien to be read there. She remembered Jutha's brilliant colour, her beautiful face with its sunny look of health and liveliness, her easy, alert gait, the spotless nicety of her neat-fitting garments, and though so young a child, Ophelia perceived the contrast they presented with the thin white cheeks, the hollow eyes, the slouching heaviness of person and carriage, the disordered dress, the general air of depression and self-abandonment. The change, although so great, had been so gradual, that the parents and brothers of Jutha, in their obtuseness of perception and care of other matters, had still not observed it, but it had long attracted Ophelia's eye, and now it smote upon her heart with more painful force than ever. "'How the wind howls! What a dreary autumn evening it is!' said Jutha, looking round her at the darkening sky. See how the leaves whirl and fall! The trees will all be bare soon, and then comes the winter. Cold, cold winter! No more forest walks when the trees are bare. They bore him barefaced on the bier. That's not the song I'm thinking of," she muttered. "'You think of sad songs now, Jutha,' said the child. "'Where are your merry ones?' 
Where indeed? Gone, all gone. He is gone, he is gone, and we cast away moan. Ay, that is it. And she began to chant in a mournful voice. And will he not come again? And will he not come again? No, no, he is dead. Go to thy deathbed. He never will come again. Who is dead, Jutha? You frighten me, said the child. No one is dead, said the young girl quickly. Who said he was dead? They say dead and gone, but we may be gone without being dead, mayn't we, little one? She spoke in a sharp, abrupt tone, as if she would fain have made it sound jestingly. Then she hurried on. Do you hear the owl-hoot? See yonder she flies, with her flappy wings and mealy feathers. I'll tell you a story about Dame Owl. I promised you a story, you know. Listen." I am listening, Jutha. The young girl told her the legend as she had heard it. She told her that when he who had pity in his heart for the veriest wretch that crawls, for the dying thief, for the erring sinner, even for her whose sins were many, when he who taught divine pity and charity above all things, walked the earth in human shape, and suffered human privation in the plenitude of his merciful sympathy with poor humanity, it once upon a time befell, that he hungered by the way, and seeing a shop where bread was baking, entered beneath the roof, and asked for some to eat. The mistress of the shop was about to put a piece of dough into the oven to bake, but her daughter, pitiless of heart, declaring that the piece was too large, reduced it to a mere morsel. This was no sooner done, than the dough began to swell and increase, until, in amazement at its miraculously growing size, the baker's daughter screamed out like an owlet, Hoo! 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 Then he who had craved food held forth his hand, and in the place where she who lacked charity had stood screaming, there was a void. But against the window beating its wings, hooting and struggling to get out, was a huge mealy-feathered owl. It forced a way through, took flight, and was seen no more excepting when some night-wanderer descries the ill-omened bird skulking in the twilight wood, or obscure grove, and then he murmurs a prayer, to be delivered from the sin of uncharitableness, as he thinks of the transformed baker's daughter. That evening on their return to the cottage, it seemed to Ophelia that those at home first became aware of the change in her friend Jutha, which she had so long perceived and lamented but it also strangely struck her, that instead of this discovery awakening kindness and compassion towards the sufferer, it appeared to excite rather anger, reproach, and even invectives. Their voices were raised in a confusion of questions, threats, and expressions of wonder, with which they assailed the young girl, in an incoherent clamour, from which the child could make out nothing clearly. The mother bemoaned her own and her daughter's fate, the father murmured deep curses, the two elder brothers strode angrily to and fro with menacing looks, ground teeth and clenched hands. The idiot boy sat gibbering and croaking a harsh wailing cry in one corner, adding to the general discordance. Jutha had flung herself upon a chair in the midst, upon the back of which she leaned, burying her face in her arms. From time to time she uttered convulsive sighs, heavy sobs burst from her, each seeming to rend her frame asunder, but else she preserved a sullen, despairing silence, as sole reply to the clamorous enquiry that surrounded her. Ophelia crept away softly to bed, unable to make out the meaning of this distressful scene, and marvelling much why they should show displeasure instead of sorrow at Jutha's illness, why they should seem to resent rather than to compassionate why they should overwhelm her with reproaches in the midst of her unhappiness, instead of seeking to comfort and console. For some time she lay pondering on these things, full of concern and wonder, 
wishing Jutha to come to bed, that she might assure her of her sympathy at least, and longing to see if caresses and loving words of pity and tenderness might not avail to lessen her poor friend's grief. But the hours crept on, and the little one's affectionate anxiety yielded to drowsiness. She slept. But it was an uneasy sleep, full of dreams, and haunting ideas of wretchedness and perplexity. From this slumber she awoke strugglingly, and with a beating heart. It was pitch dark. She felt that many hours had elapsed, and that it was the dead of night. She stretched out her arms to feel for Jutha at her side. But no Jutha was there. In alarm she started up. What could have kept her away? Was she worse? Was she unable to move? Was she still in the midst of that confusion of angry voices? The child listened. All seemed still below. What then could prevent Jutha from coming up to her room, to lie down and to get the rest she so much needed? In alarm for her friend, in an irresistible desire to learn how she was and what detained her, Ophelia stole out of bed and groped her way downstairs. On reaching the door of the sitting-room, she saw a bright streak from the crevice at the bottom, which showed her there was light in the room. She felt for the latch above her head, and succeeded in finding and unfastening it. She pushed open the door, but the blaze of light from within suddenly contrasted with the obscurity from which she had emerged, made her pause. She stood on the threshold, gazing in, trying to distinguish the objects the room contained. On the large table which occupied the centre of the apartment lay something extended which was covered with a white cloth. At one end were ranged as many iron lamps as the cottage household afforded, burning in a semicircular row. Amazed at this strange sight, the child advanced, and with an uncontrollable impulse walked straight up to the table, and raised the end of the white cloth nearest to the lamps. The light fell upon the object beneath. Startled and shuddering, the child looked upon that which was so familiar, yet so strange. Could that indeed be the face of Jutha, that white, still, rigid thing, with those breathless, motionless lips, and those eyelids that looked fixed rather than closed? And what was that, lying upon her breast and circled by her arm? A little, little face, a baby's face. It looked so transparent, so waxen, so pretty though so strangely image-like, that the child involuntarily stretched forth her finger and touched its cheek. The icy cold shot with a sharp thrill to her heart, and she screamed aloud as she turned to Jutha's face, and flung herself upon it with wild kisses and tears. Batilda, hearing the cry, came running in. She used her best efforts to calm the mourning and affrighted child, carrying her up to bed, lying down by her side, folding her in her arms, and speaking fondlingly and soothingly to her until she dropped asleep. But it was long ere this was accomplished, and for many successive nights the nurse had to sleep in the room with her charge, that she might be won to rest. The shock she had received was severe, and long left its effects upon her sensitive organization. Naturally gentle, she became timid. She shrank about, scared and trembling, fearful of she hardly knew what, but feeling unassured, doubtful, full of a vague uneasiness and alarm. Ulf's hideousness shows more horribly than ever in her eyes. He seems to her some fiend-like creature as he crouches there, drawing the flaps of his ears over till the tops reach beneath his chin, pulling his nether lip down and turning it inside out till it lies stretched and spread, displaying his cankered gums and his yellow and black teeth, some flat like tombstones, some long, narrow, and sharp like the fangs of a dog. His manner to herself puzzles and torments her, for it is capricious and varies accordingly as he meets her alone or with others. 
When the family are present he treats her roughly, speaks of her jeeringly as the little princess or the little court lady, and twits her with pride, complaining of her silence as haughty, her keeping him at a distance as arrogant and insolent. When, however, by any chance they are by themselves, he becomes cajoling, and tries all means to effect his purpose of approaching her, or getting her to come to him. He spares neither fair words, wheedling tricks, or shy devices to lure her within reach of his paws, but neither fawning nor stratagem succeed. Now more than ever she resists his advances, and contrives to elude his contact. The former curiosity which had mingled with her disgust at this idiot boy, exciting her to observe his uncouth ways, yielded entirely to the loathing she felt for him, and she now dreaded and avoided him as sedulously as she had once watched him. Upon one occasion, however, her vigilance in preventing his coming near her was frustrated. He was close upon her before she was aware. She had been wandering out towards the wood. It was winter now, and the frost hung its glittering fretwork upon bush and briar. She had been thinking how cheerless and desolate all seemed, in despite of the brilliancy of the white tracings round, since her companion Jutha was lost to her, and could never more come thither, to share her admiration of winter frost spring buds, the rich luxuriance of summer leaves and blossoms, or the mellow hues of autumn. She had been pondering upon the mystery of her friend's change of spirits, her sadness, her illness, her death, and then, as there were no flowers to be found in that sullen season, she gathered a branch of wild rose, which bore its winter fruitage of scarlet haws in bright profusion, that she might place upon Jutha's grave the best semblance that might be of a tributary garland. The child repaired with her offering to the quiet nook where she knew her friend was laid, and there, tired with her walk, oppressed with sad thoughts, and numbed into lethargy by the cold, she threw herself upon the low mound and slept. Not many minutes after she was perceived lying there, by Ulf, who crept stealthily towards her. "'It's little court lady, and fast asleep,' he muttered with a grin. "'No airs now. The bear shan't be balked of his hug this time.' He leaned down over her. The hot breath reached her face. Like the rank fumes of a charcoal furnace, it seems to stifle her with this tainted oppression. She struggled and woke, to find that loathly visage hanging just above hers. Instinctively, to ward off its fearful approach, she clutched at the nearest thing at hand. It was the branch of wild rose, which beside its scarlet berries was thickly studded with thorns. And this she thrust with all her force against the impending face. The sharp appeal was effectual. The lout drew back, smarting and bleeding. "'The rose is prickly as well as pretty,' he said, with a leer of idiot slyness. "'But we'll see if we can't pluck away its thorns and smell its sweetness in spite of them.' But in raising his hand to free himself from the obnoxious branch, which had rendered her such good service, Ulf gave the child an opportunity of slipping from his grasp. She was not slow to avail herself of the advantage but dexterously pulling her skirts from beneath his knee, which in his rude eagerness he had set fast upon them, she succeeded in raising herself away from him, scrambling to her feet, and setting off to run at her utmost speed. It would have availed her but little had he pursued her, but it happened that she had not got many paces before she was joined by Patilda, who had come out to look for her, and Ulf, at the sight of his mother, slunk away, like a cur that fears detection. That night Ophelia lay awake, a prey to fancies and terrors that would not let her close her eyes. Batilda, after sharing her bed for many nights, thinking that the child had by this time recovered from the late shock, had left her to return to her own room after seeing her softly drop off into her first sleep. 
but from this the little girl had suddenly started, broad awake, trembling and agitated, with a frightful dream she had been dreaming, of digging down into Jutha's grave, with a mad desire to look upon her face once more, of finding it only to see it change into that of Ulf, who, raising himself from the coffin, groped among the mould, and drew forth a little baby's white arm, which he felt as scratching and marring with briars. The horror of the sight awoke her. She struggled into a sitting posture, stared through the dim space, and found herself alone in that dreary room. She could just distinguish the blank square spot where the window was. There was deep snow upon the ground, which cast a sickly glare, the moon partially shining from amid haze and clouds. The familiar objects in the room looked shadowy and spectral in that uncertain light, and the child could get no assurance or steadying of her thoughts from looking upon them. At length it seemed to her that among them, there, yonder, at the farther end of the room she saw something move. It was dark, and stole along without noise, shapeless, indistinct, scarce seen but horribly present. She shuddered, and shrank beneath the bedclothes. Her heart beat violently, and her head throbbed, so loud that she could have counted the thumps of each. She had a confused notion of trying to do this amid the distraction of hearing her teeth keep a bewildering counter-current of strokes in a rapid timing of their own. Presently she clenched them firmly, that she might listen to something that caught her ear beside the tumult of her own pulses. She thought she heard a muffled sound, as if something swept against the coverlet of her bed. In desperation she held her breath, to listen the more acutely for what she so much dreaded to hear. Yes. Again the sound, as of something softly drawn along the side of the coverlet, was repeated, and this time she felt the bedclothes brushed by the passing substance. She would have shrieked aloud, but her parched throat refused to give utterance to the cry of terror that choked her. Could it be an animal? Was it anything alive? Or were there indeed wandering shapes of evil permitted to visit the earth in night and darkness, as wild tales hinted? The child's dismay hurriedly pointed to such questions but on a sudden her attention was attracted to quite a different source. There was a noise of trampling feet in the snow outside, a sound of many voices, a loud knocking at the door of the cottage, and upon her finding courage to look from beneath the bedclothes, she could see the light of torches flashing and gleaming through the window. Then there came a stir in the house, a hurry below, hasty steps ascended the stairs, and in another moment the door of her room was flung open, and in the midst of the stream of light that poured in, a figure appeared, which rushed forward to the bed where she lay, exclaiming, "'My child! My dear, dear child! My little Ophelia!' Mamma was the instinctive reply, as the child felt herself gathered into the soft security of a mother's bosom. In the confusion, no one had remarked the cowering form of Ulf, who darted from a lurking place by the bedside, and made his way out through the open door, just as the others passed into the room. It was he, who, in his brutish pertinacity of desire to obtain the hug he promised himself, had alarmed the child by prowling stealthily about her chamber in the dark. But now, no more fear, no more harm, she was surely, happily sheltered. The Lady Udra could not sufficiently feast her eyes upon her daughter's face. Again she scanned every feature, noted every particular of look and expression, sought eagerly each mark of remembered appearance, and traced each vestige of growth and alteration. As she gazed, she became aware of the burning spot that glowed and deepened in the young cheek, the too bright sparkle of the eyes, the unnatural restlessness of the lips, which at length wore an almost vacant smile, while the fingers idly played among the long curls of her mother's hair drooping over her. 
In alarm, the lady caught her child's hand in hers. It was feverishly hot. "'I have been culpably unheedful, inconsiderate. I shall have my own rash selfishness to blame, should the surprise have been too much for my darling. Yet who would have expected such sensitiveness, such susceptibility in one so young? Dear child, mother's own treasure, mother's little tender one!' Fondly, gently, she set about repairing the mischief she feared she had done. She shaded the light away from the two eager eyes. She coaxed them to close, to cease to look upon her, by clasping one of the hands in hers, that the child might know she was still there. She lay down beside her, parting the hair back upon the heated forehead, giving her from time to time cooling drinks, and suggesting none but peaceful happy thoughts, in the low, soft talking she murmured the while in her ear. Lulled thus, the child fell into slumber, but for some hours it was a disturbed, uneasy one, giving the lady many a pang of dread and self-reproach. Violent startings, abrupt twitching of the limbs, talking in her sleep, muttered ends of songs and mournful tunes alternately alarmed the watcher. Once the little girl sprang suddenly up, trembling, and looking about her with a sacred eagerness of expectation, clinging convulsively to the arm stretched to receive her. But when she felt herself enfolded within a mother's embrace, when she found herself safe nestling against a mother's heart, cherished by a mother's affection, guarded by a mother's care, she yielded tranquilly, blissfully, to a sense of perfect repose. Lapped into that balmy atmosphere of maternity, she sank into profound rest. Holy Mother Love, nearest semblance vouchsafed to mortals of divine protection, benignest human symbol of God's mercy to man, there is a blessed influence, a sacred joy, a plenitude of satisfaction in the very presence of a mother, that plainer speaks the mysterious beatitude of heaven itself to earthly intelligence, than aught else in existence. End of Part 4